0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, President of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David.
1: Thank you for joining me for today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And today we're going to depart from a little bit of the normal format for for the show because I got an email um, a couple of weeks ago with one of our listeners who wanted to summarize what he thought he had been hearing me say over the last several weeks about cosmology and and if his summary was accurate, ask me some questions to see if I would provide him some answers and they were, it was really a great email, uh, I think a great summary and some great questions. And so today, I want to take this email and make it the podcast. It essentially, let you sit in on a conversation between me and this listener who emailed me. And it probably is gonna take two weeks to get through it all, because it was, it was really a good email with some serious questions that perhaps are in the minds of many of you. So I hope you will find this really helpful. Let me begin, though, by saying again, if any of you are interested in about a four-week, hour-long, once a week, uh, for about four weeks, little look at a biblical conception of law and the common law and how it fits to the Constitution and comparing it to how we're actually doing law today, let me know. We're going to do a program like that through Kingdom uh, come.io, and if you're interested, let me know by sending an email to info at factn.org. Um, now, with that said, l- let me read to you um, what this gentleman wrote in terms of his summation of what I've been saying and, and give some feedback on that s- summation. So let me begin with this, quote, from what I can tell, You've been making the case for a return to a biblical cosmology, that's correct, and an understanding of how the universe works as designed by God through natural law as the foundation for human law and government, especially in America. Whenever we don't have that foundational understanding, we are by default giving room for and even supporting an unbiblical foundation, particularly in government and law but all of life too, shooting ourselves in the foot as Christians by helping and supporting unbiblical thinking in our country. And the answer to all of that is yes, you got it right. If we don't regain an understanding of a biblical cosmology, an understanding of what kind of place this is and how it works, then our our efforts will will be used by God because God doesn't allow anything to escape his sovereign use and purposes as he says in, in Proverbs 16 even the evil are made for the uh, the wicked are made for the days of evil but but will be laboring in vain will not be building um, in a way that will endure he continues on without this understanding any law we make or try to put forth has inherently given in a worldly premise and is still an unbiblical argument for reality and truth, even though we may not realize it. So what he's saying here is that if we're not using a biblical cosmology, we're inherently giving in to a worldly premise. Well, that's right. We live in a world of antithesis. Either you operate according to the nature and kind of universe that we have and the way it operates, or you're not. There's no middle ground between the two. So if, if we aren't consciously doing that, trying to argue according to a biblical cosmology, uh, then um, if, if we in fact are doing it, it's like the blind squirrel finding a nut. It's not because we intended to do it, it's by accident, okay? And most of the time, What I see within the profession and what I now see in looking back on my own life is I don't consciously, or I didn't consciously, and most organizations now don't consciously try to proceed on the ground of a biblical cosmology. And while in their minds, they They think, as I did, that I am proceeding for the glory of God because I'm trying to stop an evil thing. The emphasis is more on the stopping of the evil thing than it is really on the glory of God. And not doing evil things does not measure up to the glory of God. That's what Jesus said about the Pharisees you don't do all these things right you don't as he said to the rich young ruler you don't commit murder and and, and, um, you know cheat on your spouse and so on and so forth but but if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of, of of this person well you've still fallen short of the glory of God we were made for the glory of God and only as we pursue the glory of God are we actually being fully human now the listener continues on. We as a culture, currently, don't know what we're doing with law in general. No foundation, no wisdom or moral truth for the nature of reality as designed by God. And I would say, in response to that, in my experience, that is largely true. I believe last week I shared with you the legislator in Tennessee who wrote a national op-ed piece in support of the transgender legislation that was recently upheld by the Sixth Circuit and he said this doesn't have anything to do with religion or dogma. It's about just reality. So he's reduced unwittingly reality to biological facts and man is more than just a biological fact. He's made in the image of God. And that entails biological things. It entails physical things. But the physical is not the whole of what man is because we're also spiritual beings. He continues on. And so, we as a culture will naturally feel the need to posit law after law to govern every behavior according to current trends and subjective opinion. Not just what shouldn't be done, but what must be done. Now, there's a lot in this statement here. And I would simply say this. We feel that we have to posit law after law. In other words, we have to enact law after law. And I remember thinking, even as a legislator, you know, what's going to be my legislative agenda? I, I, I need to look like I'm doing something. I need to have a law, you know, maybe a law to address this or a law to address that. And I think the reason we feel that way, the reason I felt that way, is because we really no longer believe there is any law to govern ourselves or our interactions with one another unless we positivize it by statutory enactment. Now, positivizing a pre-existing law of human nature and human relations is not the same thing, though, as being positivistic in our understanding of law itself. So let me, let me give you an example outside the context of um, the kind of law we normally talk about on this show so that you understand what I mean by the legislature positivizing an unwritten law by means of statute versus thinking there is no law unless we have a statute. Music, for example, is positivizing the laws of sound and waves and sound waves and rhythm is positivizing mathematical truths over time. Okay? So... So music is a, is a way to give expression to positivize certain laws regarding the nature of sound and rhythm. And rhythm ties into mathematics, right? So a measure has four beats, and then you have to decide within those four beats what notes get how many beats. And you go from there. That's really what a lawyer or a legislator is doing whether or not he or she appreciates it. And they're doing with law, the natural law, and the common law, what the musician is doing. But the positivist would say, we make all these things up. Of course, the musician can't just make stuff up without producing a cacophony. And a lawyer or a legislator can't do so without also creating chaos. In fact, it's, it's interesting, one of the legislators in Tennessee had said on the floor last year in the context of transgender legislation that there is no such thing as common law. And he said, we create the common law. We create the common law by passing a statute, and then when the judge interprets that statute, that interpretation is the common law. To be honest, that's probably one of the most ignorant and unlearned statements about law and the relationship of law to legislation that I have ever heard. But it's, to be honest, not surprising based on the humanistic view of law that we're taught in, in law school, particularly when you go to second-rate law schools that are just trying to teach you enough to get past the bar exam so you can go out and make a living. But in in this legislator's own state here in Tennessee, one of the justices of the Supreme Court. Said this that just completely refutes him, but it feeds into this notion that the legislature is actually just simply putting into positive declared status the law that already exists. Here's what the judge said The General Assembly is presumed to know the state of the existing law when it enacts legislation. You hear what he's saying? There's already law there. There's already law that governs everything. Now we we may have to uh, understand how that principle of law applies to new circumstances. For instance, wiretapping. We we didn't know anything about wiretapping, but we did know about searching people's homes and their papers, right? So you you take the fundamental principle, the boundary that God says, be careful about moving the boundaries, and then you say, how does that boundary now apply to this new technology? So he's saying when the legislature enacts a law, it it's presumed to know what the law already is. So they know how to develop the statutory law. And he says this, This presumption includes the General Assembly's knowledge of the state of the common law when it enacts legislation. Now this legislator cannot keep his oath because he doesn't think there is any, any common law that exists before he enacts a statute. He said it doesn't exist. I mean, that's why, you know, sometimes I get so frustrated. You deal with people in our political bodies, even lawyers, who have no conception of law or government, and they are strictly humanistic positivists. There is no law till man says there is a law. And that's the foundation for tyranny, right? Now, let me continue with this email I got. The listener says, so even if a law has biblical and moral particulars, I assume what he's referring to here is a law that says you can't provide this hormone therapy to a 12-year-old little boy uh, to change his, quote, gender. He says, so so even if it has a, a biblical moral particular, it's still flawed because it admits the world's anti-theistic view of reality even if a short-term success, it's not good long-term. To which I would say, yes, you got it. You've understood what I've been saying. And the example of that, I think the perfect example of that, are the bills addressing women's sports and the transgender issue in women's sports and transgenderism in general. So with respect to women's sports, to demonstrate what I'm saying, that. You're trying to do a good thing. You're trying to say this 15-year-old boy can't identify as a girl, even if you know he's had hormone therapy or some kind of surgery, and compete against other high school girls in a swimming or track event. Okay, I mean that that would be a, a moral particular that seems to be good, but this is the testimony that was given by the largest Christian legal organization in America in support of that kind of le- legislation, keeping the 15-year-old boy from identifying as a girl and competing against other girls. And I've written about it in, in more depth, although only about 20 pages, in a little monograph I did called Advancing Towards Christian Neolism" or something like that. And if And if you would like to get a PDF copy of that little monograph send an email to us at info at factn.org and ask for toward christian nihilism can you get a link to that if you don't have uh, the, the internet capabilities well you can call our office at 615-591-2090 call that number and just ask for the front desk don't try to go through all the hoops to get to me and just say hey i want to get it a copy of this monograph, and we can mail you one if you'll give us an address. So anyway, let me let me go on. It 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 might be the kind of thing, for instance, you'd want to use in a small group group discussion, or, or take to a Sunday school class. It'd be easy enough to for people to read, you know, between Sundays, and y'all can talk about it in in a Sunday school class. So anyway, just just ideas. Anyway, here's how the. Christian lawyer began the legal argument in support of the bill saying boys can't compete against girls. Quote, this body must act, referring to the legislature, to set a clear, fair, and scientifically based policy to guide schools and colleges and to guarantee equal opportunities for female athletes. You know, Of course, the very question is what is a female, but notice that he's saying the issue here is what science would tell us creates fair competition. Notice his next statement. Every student should have the opportunity to play sports, but the question is, he doesn't say what is a man, what is a woman, what is a male, what is a female? He says the question is what is the most fair way organize sports so that we're going to skip the great important underlying anthropological question of what does it mean to be male and female to just try to figure out how to have fair sports now do you see why that's unhelpful I mean it, it just is it it is embracing the worldview that science is all there is to give us knowledge about the world and science especially as we think of science just empirically as measuring and quantifying data and how it how it operates it it can't give us any meaning to what it means to be male or female and it can't give us any purpose for being female as distinguished from being male the whole argument capitulates the whole biblical cosmology and in that sense, it's completely unhelpful, and I would call it a righteous-looking deed that in God's sight is a filthy rag. Now, the, uh, the listener continues. So, he says, with all of that as introduction and summary and trying to make sure he's got it right, he says, we need a return to a biblical cosmology, God's design and natural law by which we seek to ground all our man-made laws. To which my short answer is, correct. Bingo. You got it. In fact, William Blackstone, in his commentaries on the laws of England, now those commentaries, as I've referred to them many times, they're very important to the United States Supreme Court. They cite them multiple times. They cited them in the Dobbs decision about abortion. They cited Blackstone in the Second Amendment decision, New York Pistol versus Bruin, last summer, in understanding the right to keep and bear arms. They have cited Blackstone on what it means to... Uh, to have a seizure of property and they use Blackstone all the time to try to interpret the words of the Constitution because the words of the Constitution were drawn from the common law okay and here's what Blackstone says in his introduction about law upon these two foundations and here they are the law of nature and the law of revelation depend all human laws That is to say, no human laws should be suffered to contradict these. So, abortion, for example, is contrary to the law of nature, clarified, made more secure in our minds by the law of revelation, and no human law should allow it to contradict those two things. Okay? We would say the same thing about. Uh, marriage marriage is a man and a woman. That's the design of God for, for for revealing his image and for creating more image bearers. And so according to what the natural law would seem to say to us, that we all know f- throughout history we've been male and female. And male and female, when they copulate, produce um, future generations, more people just like them who do the same thing and have been doing it for thousands of years, and Revelation confirms that what we think we perceive in this natural law is true, well, we shouldn't allow something to contradict them. And if you're going to call the relationship of marriage between a man and a woman a marital relationship, then a relationship between two men or two women cannot have that same name because it's a confusion of terms. It's a a confusion in our minds about what marriage is, what man and woman is, and we're going to talk about this more in just a moment. But Blackstone goes on. He says this, There are, it is true, a great number of indifferent points in which both the divine law and the natural law leave a man at his own liberty, but which are found necessary for the benefit of society to be restrained within certain limits. Okay, so that would be the most obvious example would be something like speed limits and stop signs. Uh, There's no uh, law about that that we're going to find in the Bible, but we extract from the principles of the Bible about respect for property and life and and God being a God of order, the uh, the need to regulate uh, how we engage in transportation, right, so that so that lives are not necessarily uh, endangered, more than necessary, and property's not ruined, and so on and so forth. And he says that within this area where there's discretion is that human laws have their greatest force and efficacy. Uh, That's kind of a strange thing. In these areas where, in essence, there's no clear natural law or revealed law, that's where human law has its greatest import. For with regard to such points as are not indifferent, human laws are only declaratory of and act in subordination to the former. He explains that in the instance, in the case of murder. This is expressly forbidden by the divine and demonstrably by the natural law. And from these prohibitions, the natural law and the divine law, arises all the true unlawfulness of this crime. Those human laws that annex a punishment to it do not at all increase its moral guilt, superadd any fresh obligation, in foro consentia, meaning Latin for in the form of the conscience, uh, to abstain from its perpetration. So he's saying (laughs) when the law is indifferent to a matter, well, that's where the, the human law becomes very, very important because otherwise it could be this way or that way and we, we, we need to clarify it. But where the law cannot be indifferent, that's what I've been saying about marriage, the law cannot be indifferent about the nature of the marital relationship. The human laws didn't, didn't add any dignity to marriage, notwithstanding the Supreme Court saying they do. Uh, any more than laws against murder added to the heinousness of murder. Okay? I hope I'm making that clear. So, in other words, Blackstone might say the law would be indifferent as to who could witness the exchange of vows between a man and a woman to create a marital relationship, but the law can't be indifferent to the fact that it needs to be a man and a woman. I hope that makes sense. And and his reference here to the form of conscience, Blackstone saying, it, it doesn't add to the form of conscience. But remember what Paul wrote in Romans 13, 4 and 5. He's referring to the magistrate there, and he says the magistrate is, quote, God's minister for you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. See, the law would bear on our conscience. And what he's saying is when we pass a law on murder, it shouldn't add to our conscience against murder anything more than what the natural law should already put onto our conscience. It doesn't make it more bad. It doesn't make us more culpable that we pass a statute against murder. So with with that as sort of my response to his summary of what he heard me saying, and I think he did a a really great job, and I hope this has been helpful. Um, Let me turn to um, one of his questions, and we'll just get started here. He said, so if... Assuming, he says, I'm not missing uh, anything or misunderstanding anything. My questions are, how do we do this? Restore a biblical cosmology. He put that in brackets, specifically in our culture. What would that look like with particulars? And he adds this. Is the goal to change minds only? Just have conferences, church meetings, podcasts, discussions with neighbors, campus meetings, etc. Are there laws we can start enacting to lay or relay that foundation? Are there cases that need to be brought, decisions by the Supreme Court, legislation enacted, laws repealed, etc. Are we trying to change laws, create new ones with this foundation? Those are all really, really great questions. And I'm going to get to those next week. But before you stop listening, You need to listen to this clip from um, my friend Jeff Schaefer, former attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom who now runs the Hale Institute at New St. Andrews College in Moscow, Idaho. You can find this speech on YouTube. It's called Mischief in the Law. I would encourage you to listen to it, and you'll probably have to listen to it multiple times, I have, because it is jam-packed with significance. But as we think about restoring this cosmology and what do we need to do to restore it and how do we go about doing it? Is it church meetings? Is it laws? Is it legal arguments? I want you to appreciate the climate in which we are now dealing because the biblical cosmology that we had that was the foundation for our nation's laws that Blackstone was operating on has now been dismissed and the final bell was tolled by the Supreme Court for that cosmology in its 2015 decision, Obergefell versus Hodges, dealing with marriage. An introduction to this clip is, is Jeff is quoting an article by Oliver O'Donnell, an Anglican uh, minister-priest, about the commandment to honor your father and your mother. And the fact that it's speaking here, really, about covenantal succession and how to order a society that is stable, that can endure, is that we have to honor those who've come before us and learn from them. And with that, I'll bid you adieu until next week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty.
0: No social survival in any land can be imagined without a stable cultural environment across generations. By tradition, society identifies itself from one historical moment to the next, and so continues to act as itself. End quote. And here, the outrage of Obergefell comes into clearer relief. The project of redefined desexed marriage is not just lawless Rather, it aims to construct a new order repudiating the created world that is acknowledged and reiterated in the commandment to honor father and mother. Obergefell defies the very idea and public acknowledgement of an institution of generational continuation. It does this by making the public constitutionally required and defining rule of family, not the relation of father, mother, offspring repeated and extended through time and generations but instead a sterile, self-oriented utility from which genealogy and physiological inheritance are banished as defining features. So the court in Obergefell targets the very institution and paradigm of cultural transmission and redefines it for purposes of a national legal mandate as a radically present, contemporaneous, fruitless, futureless, and humanly meaningless status Newly classifying it as a government handout, a chosen cure for loneliness, and a venue for self definition. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.factennessee.org. That's F A C Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at FACTennessee.